Can you imagine losing everything from doing a simple lease option? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You're going to get to hear it live. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. is the Virtual Real Estate Investor Podcast with Vincent Polisi. Buckle your your seatbelt and prepare to learn how to legally make six figures investing in real estate with no money, no credit check, and nothing but a computer and internet connection. Learn how you too can begin generating buyers and sellers for free today and why you're only two calls away from making a $10,000 or more payday while never leaving the comfort of your home. And now, your host, the virtual real estate investor, Vincent Polisi. Welcome to episode 006 of the Virtual Real Estate Investor Podcast. In this episode, we are going to cover a live webinar that we did. It was actually a live paid webinar that we did on a topic that many of you need to be educated on, and that is this, lease options. They are sold by guru after guru as the panacea of the easiest way to make money in real estate. Unfortunately, most people don't know how to do them correctly. They don't know all of the pitfalls that are involved in these types of agreements. They seem very simple, but let me tell you, they're not. But as always, you don't have to take my word for it. We've got a panel of guests in this webinar. This was actually a hot seat that we did where I tore apart a real estate attorney's contracts. This attorney is actually the real estate attorney that Joe McCall uses. And we went through step-by-step, document-by-document, clause-by-clause, all of the, uh, I don't even know how to say it, landmines that were involved in these contracts if they ever ended up with somebody that knew what the law was. You're going to get to hear all that live. You'll also get to hear from Bill Walston, who's a CPA and professional real estate investor. You'll get his take on it as far as what his impression is, what the tax laws are, what Dodd-Frank laws are. And then to top things off, you're going to get to hear from Scott Moyes, who is also a real estate investor. He's based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. And Scott ended up losing everything from doing what was perceived to be an improperly structured lease option deal. Hey, what's up, investors? John Lee Dumas here, founder and host of Entrepreneur on Fire, awarded Best of iTunes 2013, and you're listening to the Virtual Real Estate Investor Podcast with my man, Vincent Polisi. Prepare to ignite. You think I'm talking about breaking the law? No, I'm just trying to figure out how far you want to invent. As far as you can without breaking it. Okay, welcome everyone to our very first edition of the Hot Seat with the Virtual Real Estate Investor. Today's guest is Angela Russo, real estate attorney and owner of Avalon Escrow. Our panelists today include Bill Walston. And <clears throat> you have to forgive me, I've got, I'm going hoarse now that we're about to do this. So if I sound a little froggy, that's why. Bill Walston is a CPA and professional real estate investor. And we also have Scott Moyes, who is also a professional real estate investor and they both have um, experience and information here related to the topic at hand. What we're going to be discussing today is lease options and the standard way that they are being peddled by a lot of the guru crowd that's out there, um, which is wholly incorrect. And we'll get many of you in a tremendous amount of trouble because a lot of these contracts are structured improperly. And the problem that you have, unfortunately, is that um, what and you guys probably know this better than I do, but what it sort of seems like to me is that a lot of these guys 
take a course, they find success with something, and then they begin teaching it. And unfortunately, that is not the path to being an expert or having all the knowledge that's associated with it. So there are many fallacies that are associated with contract law. If you've never litigated some of these things or been dragged into court, um, you understand exactly what it is that can happen. So what we want to do is I'm going to take you through, <clears throat> pardon me, I want to take you through a contract prepared by an attorney, that's Angelo. And as an investor, I'm going to pick this apart based on what I know, and then I'll, I'll open it up for Angelo to comment and then for um, Bill to come in, share his thoughts and experience, and then um, Scott as well, because he's got, um, Scott's actually been prosecuted for a lot of what we're about to discuss. So if you have any questions, please type them into the chat box so that we can answer. There should be a chat box on your right-hand side, I believe. If, or maybe there's a question, I think the questions box here on the right that you can ask questions and you can also chat and we will get this thing going. All right. So just to give you some, some background here, I've done tons of lease options over the years. I've done them for clients. I've done them for myself personally on homes that I had acquired. Um, they can be a very useful tool. The problem is, is that 99.9% .9 of the time, they are used incorrectly and they are very, very bad deals for both buyer and seller. Or if we use the correct terminology, um, landlord and tenant and optionee and optionor. Okay. So I'm going to show you exactly why that is, why I got away from them back in 2008. Um, most people don't understand all the mechanics and how they actually work. <clears throat> and we'll kind of then, uh, we'll go to, we'll then go through the contracts so you can understand what some of the issues are associated with them. But one of the most glaring issues in the standard lease option agreement is what is called the equitable interest argument. And what happens in most lease option contracts is unknowingly um, equitable interest is created. You also have the creation nine times out of 10 of what is called a de facto or disguised sale. And that comes down to what is the intent of the agreement initially, as well as what is the verbiage that's utilized in the contract and how are certain things applied. And we'll go through all these line by line so you can understand exactly um, how this works. Now, what happens is this, and if, just to give you an example, if I were to be the tenant or the option E on the standard contract that is used and sold out there in a lot of these courses, okay, what I could do is get into the property immediately stop paying and when they made the effort for the dispossessory action to evict me bring forth the equitable interest argument okay and at that point the judge cannot evict me he has to take it through the, the excuse me the landlord then would have to take it through what's called the judicial foreclosure process all right, and you're going to see that based on the way these contracts, and you guys can see exactly what I'm talking about um, line by line. Got them up here somewhere. There. Okay. All right, so. If we go through, this is a standard residential lease I've used. And before I even get into this with Angela, let me tell you guys this. I personally have used a document almost identical to this one on many deals that I have done as well. Okay, so 
And I tell you, it's the norm that's out there. I've actually done a lot of this stuff myself. I don't do it anymore for all the reasons that you're about to find out, but let me kind of go through this. So can everybody see the, the lease? What I've gone through here is I've gone through and I've marked up the lease with comments so you can see exactly what I'm talking about and then we'll address these line by line. Um, but basically, on the, in the very beginning, we get into uh, lessor is not obligated to accept any rent payment that is late more than two days after its due date, even if such payment is accompanied by an amount equal to the late charge. I'm not aware of any state that that is legal for a couple of different reasons. Number one, most states, there there is a period of time, and I'm not, a, and, and again, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an attorney for any state. I certainly don't know all landlord-tenant law in, every, in all 50 states, but of all the states I've ever done business in, I'm not aware of any state that that could be the case or that we would have the ability to evict without remedy, meaning generally in most states, the uh, the remedy for a default is to hit the tenant with what's called a three-day letter to pay or quit. Sometimes it's a five-day letter, depending on what state you're in. And at that point, they have the ability to remedy the defaulted payment and continue on with their lease um, as originally uh, laid out in the contract. Okay. So I don't know, Angelo. Is that a is that an Ohio thing? Is that legal there? Um, normally, it's three days, so that's why the late fee isn't added until the third. Okay. Also, the three day notice when you're giving to someone isn't three days notice to cure the default. It's three days to remove yourself from the properties to prevent the foreclosure from being filed against you. But it still doesn't um, stop your obligation on the lease. So the three-day notice is not a notice to cure the default. It's a three-day notice saying that if you leave the property voluntarily, then I will not file a forceable eviction action. Right, right. And that I agree with. In Georgia, they use what's called a three-day letter to pay or quit. And it is, it's either pay and, and cure the default or leave, and we won't proceed with the dispossessory action. So that's why I'm asking Ohio, you. That, you do not have to. Okay. And that's why Ohio, I'm asking you. you do not have to give someone the action. Okay, so you you telling me that Ohio, if somebody's two, day, two days late, you can evict? Three days. Three I, days. So on the third day, if they haven't paid, I can give them a three-day notice, and I don't have to take the rent anymore if I don't want to. Okay. Now, judge is probably going to give you a hard time if you're doing that, but you are legally allowed to do that. So when he shows up in the dispossessory action, the judge is not going to ask him for payment or issue the dispossessory warrant? No, they're basically going to go through a list of questions. I don't have them in front of me now, but they basically say, you know, they asked the landlord, did the person pay the rent? No. Did they, did you give them a three day notice? Yes. When did you give it to them on this date? How do you know that they received it? Um, have you collected any money since that date? And then they'll ask the tenant, are all these things true? You're gone. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Like I said, that may be an Ohio thing. I'm not familiar with Ohio state landlord tenant law. I think you know, part of the issue that I had with it in reading through it was that, um, and it may be accurate, like I said, it may be accurate for your state, but these things are being utilized by people all over the United States that had bought into the wholesaling lease options course. Okay. So <laughs> I can tell you, I can tell you for a fact that that's not legal in most states. Well, you guys are lucky if you can do it in three days. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. Yeah, Ten Tennessee Tennessee requires a thirty-day notice. Wow, a thirty-day notice, and and then if they uh, if they do the same thing within six months, then you then you only have to give a fourteen-day notice. Uh, wow. But 
if you're assaulted by by the tenant, you can give them a three day notice. That's the only time. If they've damaged your property or assaulted you or something like that, you can give a three day notice. But other than that, I mean, typically our our notice is thirty days. Wow! How long does it take you to get a court date? Uh, much longer than thirty days, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> But we actually well, do have to show that we've given a thirty a thirty day notice, um, and they they've passed in Tennessee what they call the the uh, the Uniform Residential Landlord and Tenant Act, and it's kind of crazy. It, it's very very tenant friendly. Yeah, as an example, I've got uh, investment properties in New Jersey, and they have till five days past the first before you can even consider a payment late. So again, this is definitely a state by state specific issue. Very like much I so. Yeah, like I indicated, you know, if it is legal in Ohio, this document is correct as far as that's concerned. But my issue with it is it's being peddled and used in all 50 states where that is not necessarily the case. So let me move on down here. When we get when we What's get that? a new client that when we get a new client that signs up for Avalon what we'll do is we'll find an attorney in that state and we'll ask them to review our documents and they make changes to them for that particular state. Now, I don't know every other state and that's why we ask for that to happen. So we yeah. actually take on the burden of the cost of hiring someone in each state when we get someone in like a new contract. So if someone came to me from you know South Carolina and they said, you know, we'd like you to do a lease option over there, since I don't know my documents are, are valid there, we'll contact someone in South Carolina send them our documents, pay them to go over them, make any changes to make them valid in their state. And then those are the ones that we use. Well, well that's a bit, yeah, that's a good And, and do. you know what, Vincent, I, th I think that's, that's really great. The problem that I have with a lot of these courses is people buy a course and they take that contract right out of the course and, and disregard any state state requirements. You know, I think at a minimum, we ought to be telling people say you need to have these reviewed by your attorney. I, yeah, I can totally concur. And I know when we did, we've done stuff on the owner finance side in Colorado, as an example, they have some very state specific things that have to be done on a contract for deed. Um, we'll mm -hmm. be notifying, notifying the, um, I forget what they call it, but it's the, the um, property tax magistrate, I think is what they call it. And <clears throat> of the change in who's going to be responsible for, for tax payments and that kind of thing. And if you don't do that, you don't have a valid contract at that point. So very, very important if you guys are out there, you know, kind of flying by the seat of your pants with contracts from some course. They're not universal in every state, and they will absolutely hang you out to dry. So it's imperative to understand what it is that you're doing and um, certainly, you know, contact a real estate attorney or get a state-specific contract uh -huh. depending on where you're getting your contracts from. So, all right, if we go down through this, the next the very next thing we have in here, which we're going through. Hey, uh, yeah. Let me uh, let me just, I, I, if you mind, uh, let me address something. You know, you bring up a really good point uh, about getting in front of these judges, and you never know what they're going to do or say, um, as we'll find out later when we talk about what happened to me. But but uh, you never know what they're going to do or say, and most of them, to be honest with you, a lot of them don't even know the law, mm -hmm. and uh, and 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 that's a big problem for the tenant, not necessarily the landlord, because unless the tenant actually brings an attorney to a court of eviction, which is very rare, and actually knows how to uh, uh, make their claim of equity, uh, they'll they'll all they'll all just be evicted. Um, 
you know, of course, as you just heard, in some jurisdictions, they're more tenant friendly. Right. But uh, unless they're able to make the proper claim, um, uh, usually by an attorney, not by themselves, they're they're never going to get. And that's the argument that I get all the time. You know me; I make a big deal out of that, uh, and and it very rarely happens as it did to me. And that's the reason is because they don't have the proper representation, nor can they afford it. And even if they had uh, the the proper rep- representation, it would cost a lot uh, for an attorney to. Uh, uh, stall forestall their eviction and force a foreclosure. So that that's why most tenant and I'll say 99% of them are able to be evicted from lease options is because not only they don't know, they don't have an attorney and the judge doesn't know either unless a good attorney brings it up. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think what most people don't understand is that the judges typically are sitting there waiting for both sides to bring them the supporting case law. That substantiates. Well, you know, and, and this is the argument. This is the argument that I get from gurus. I've even gotten it from uh, you, and, and even from Bill. Is that well, this just stuff just never happened. And I wouldn't say never, but you're absolutely right. It's the same issue when we start talking about do on cell violations too. Does uh-huh. it happen? Very rarely. Can it? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a violation of a contract, and if it's argued correctly, then uh, as what happened in my case. I'm screwed. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. All right, let, let me let me kind of go through this so we can get, get moving along here. I didn't understand, Angela, I didn't understand this clause because you've got two, basically two clauses that discuss assignments, subletting, et cetera, in here. But we can skip past that because it's not really what I was getting into here. The big one here, as far as I'm concerned, is the maintenance and repair aspect. Um, again, and this maybe it's an Ohio thing. Pardon me. I am not aware of any state anywhere that allows deferral of all maintenance and all repairs to a tenant because that is a landlord's and or owner's responsibility. And when we start getting into the equitable interest argument and layering uh, clauses and contracts based on the intent for the de facto or disguised sale, um, and I'll let Bill address this uh, as well. The IRS, who is the ruling authority in the United States, uh, their definition basically is if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's a duck. And so many of these lease option agreements are strictly nothing other than a de facto or disguised sale, where the initial intent is a sale. That's the that's the purpose of the agreement. And when you layer it with, and I've done the same thing, so I'm not I'm not pointing fingers, but when you layer it with the maintenance and repair onto I lost you Vince yeah we're we're still here <laughs> I can hear you guys <laughs> yeah we don't we don't know where Vince went maybe he lost his voice altogether <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> There you are. <laughs> I had to cough. I didn't want to cough on the microphone, so forgive me. What I was uh, saying, saying, saying was that the maintenance and repair issue here, that what happens in when you start layering um, clauses and contracts based on the intent, and that's what the judges are going to be looking for, and that's what the IRS is going to be looking for, is what is the intent of the agreement. And when you take a maintenance and repair uh, clause and make all maintenance and repairs responsibility of a tenant, Okay, so that's what this is. I'm not aware, again, and maybe it's an Ohio thing, but I'm not aware of any state that legally allows that. Does it happen? All day, every day. I've done it a ton of times myself. Is it legal based on landlord-tenant law? That 
probably questions. I know it's not in Georgia. I know it's not in Florida. Um, maybe it is in Ohio. I don't know. But it's not it's, in Ohio. It is not in Ohio. But let me explain why it's there. Okay. Um, almost everything that you do when you're an investor or a wholesaler, a lease option, is psychological in, in respect. So what we do is, and I, and this is why I warn people not to just take forms and use them because they don't understand behind them. And that's one of the things that we had discussed where someone might take my forms and they bring them back to me and they don't understand how to use them. I explained to all of the owners when they sign these documents, listen, if you go to court on this clause, you will lose. Okay. I tell them straight out, this is not something that you're, you're not allowed to put the burden on the, on the tenant for these kinds of repairs. The reason why we put it on there is we want the tenant to feel like he's owning the property so that he's going to be responsible for everything. But I let them know, listen, you need to make a decision, you know, a business decision. What is it that you want? Some people put in here anything less than 500, the tenant's responsible for anything more than 500, the landlord is in order to try and get a halfway point, like you said, for the de facto sale but still psychologically so they know for any of the minor things they're taking care of. Most of the landlords that I deal with, they want the tenant to feel like they're responsible for everything and not to bother. Now, like I said, I tell them up front, if you go to court, you will lose on this clause. We have it in there as a psychological barrier from the tenant coming back. And it comes back on a lot of these things on these documents. And I think it's exactly what uh, Scott said that, if you go, if there's a default in these, in these uh, arrangements, it's generally the tenant who fails to make the payments. And if the tenant fails to make the payments and you go to court, you want to try and protect the landlord or the owner, because the tenant, if he doesn't have any money to make the payments, doesn't have money to hire an attorney, and so it's going to be a lot easier to get it done. If you're protecting the, if you're protecting the tenant too much, now all of a sudden, if there's a default in some way, the landlord owns the house. More than likely, they have a few grand to pay an attorney. So that's why we gear things more towards the landlord from a psychological standpoint. And that's why this clause is in there in that way. But I agree with you 100% that this will not be enforceable in Ohio. Yeah. I, and Does that I make think, sense? Yeah, perfect sense. Like, and like I said, I've used the exact same clause uh, many, many times for, this, for the, all the reasons that you just cited. The, the challenge is, and as Scott will get, <clears throat> pardon me, gets into his story, um, this is a big, big um, bone of contention for the equitable interest argument and the de facto sale where a tenant can force the judicial foreclosure process if they're savvy. Um, there are, I've seen people get strung out literally for 18 months with a tenant in place on a deal like this where the tenant knew exactly what the law was and what to do. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why we have in all of our contracts that they waive um, trial by jury because in Georgia, as an example, Believe it or not, on an eviction, they can get a trial by jury, and it takes 12 months to get that set up because it's just it's never done, if that makes any sense. And meanwhile, the entire time there, they're not paying. And so we've got that. We have them waive affirmative defenses. We have them, I mean, I take them through, you know, it's a spring-loaded bear trap to make sure that we're protected. But, you know, the concern from, for me from us from a seller's perspective or from a landlord's perspective who is ultimately our client that we're going to have a relationship with um, you know, through the duration of this contract, even though you're in and out technically because of an assignment or um, depending on how they're structured, but if it's an assignment, then you still are married to the, I mean, you're still married to both people. I hate to say it. You're in and out technically legally, but you're the first person that's going to get a call in most cases when something goes upside down. So 
pardon me, move on. That, that to me was the big thing because, like I said, the equitable interest thing and, and forcing the foreclosure is something that you want to avoid at all costs if possible. Um, you got on here, and I didn't, you had like these two clauses back to back. I wasn't really understanding because they're, they're kind of redundant, but um, you have an inspection. It says lesser and his agents shall have the right at all reasonable times during the term of this lease and any renewal thereof to enter the demise premises for the purpose of inspecting the premises and all, <clears throat> pardon me, and all building and improvements thereon. I'm not, again, maybe it's an Ohio thing. I'm not aware of any state where I don't have to give at least 24 and sometimes 48 hours written notice. Um, before I come in, unless it's an emergency and there's, you know, houses on fire, there's water coming out of the front door or something like that. Is that an Ohio deal? No, you're required to give at least 24 hours notice, but we just put it on there in case someone has an issue. We had gotcha. one now, um, to give you an example, the mm -hmm. person signed the lease option. They went into the house and they didn't like the carpeting and they ripped it out. And the landlord went berserk because it was, was newer carpeting. They're like, what are they doing to my place? Um, I want to come in and see it. The person was there. They could have refused them entry, but they said, okay, hey, this allows me to come in. I saw you tearing this thing out. I'm worried about my property. It's not an emergency. There's not, you know, a water leak or anything else. But it's just in there so that they can make the argument if they want to try and go in. But, again, yeah, it's 24 hours written notice as a requirement, whether it's in the lease or not. I've had yeah. some people tell me, well, I want to take that out. I said, well, you can take it out, but, the, you know, statute says that, you got 24. If they give you written 24 hours notice, you got to let them in anyway. Exactly. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, this next one is something that kind of caught me off guard in the, in the document. I'm not sure why this is in here. Uh, honestly, and this is a lease for an apartment, which doesn't make sense. It says acknowledges common areas in the building in which the apartment is located. Um, I didn't understand why it's the just apartment. a matter of whether there's sometimes if there's an apartment or if there's a uh, townhouse, and that mm -hmm. probably should be taken out if it's just a regular home. But a lot of gotcha. townhomes might have common areas, yeah. things like that. No, and, and I agree with that. I think the point I'm trying to make to the people that are listening here is that these boilerplate contracts that you're getting from these guys that you know, you're buying these courses from, they contain clauses like that that nobody's reading or addressing. And you've got to take the time and craft your contract specific to each situation and make sure when you're using them over and over again that you actually read through them and don't make um, – errors that, that don't apply. Okay, so then we get down here to the assignment and cancellation, and it says, lessor acknowledges and agrees that original lessee, okay, uh, and I, this is a previously undefined party, who I don't know who this is at this point, has the right to assign its interest in this arrangement to a third party for a fee without the consent of lessor. I understand what you're doing here. You're saying the lessee has the right to assign, but we've identified an original lessee as opposed to whom? That I didn't understand. Um, it should be defined, but original lessee would be the the person who actually signed this agreement the first time. And there's a lot of times be, we've would had. That be the investor. That would be the investor. The investor on this document, yes. Right. Okay. But That's we've fine. I've also had deals where it's not an investor who takes it, and they just want to have the right to to assign it later on if it doesn't meet their needs. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. But these two clauses were added specifically for investors. Yeah, I know it makes sense. I understand that understood what the intent was. All right. Here's probably the biggest one. And I know Bill's gonna have a field day with this one. When you have on your terms, <clears throat> pardon me, and we start getting into rent credits. Oh. Credits <laughs> are, are, are a big, big, big no no. 
Uh, I used to do them. We used to do, you used to be able to get away back in 2007, we could get away with hundred percent rent credits uh-huh. for the tw- first, mm-hmm. first 12 months and the bank would finance that and give them credit for it in the purchase agreement. All that changed and has continued to change since that, since then. And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think they're crediting anything other than um, payments above and beyond the actual rent. But you know, there's new new loan products coming out all the time. So I don't know if anybody's actually doing these and closing these like this. <clears throat> Maybe they yeah, can what, address that. What? Yeah, what they've done, what they did in recent years, Vincent was they would look at what fair market rent was and anything above fair market rent they would allow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To the down payment. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I think I was, I, that's what I was trying to say. I believe yeah. but, uh, it's that and anything paid over and above like, yes, you know, and, and guys for the, for the people out there that are familiar with the mortgage industry, I used to be a broker years ago. Um, we used to have what was called lease option refinance program. And uh-huh. you're exactly right, guys. They, they would take into consideration, uh, previous to this mortgage mess, uh, as, as much as 50 to 100% of the rent being credited, depending on the, the property value and so on. And uh, as long as they could show it was an actual cash transaction. And then, of course, whatever their option deposit was or, or whatever they agreed to or gave them up front. And they, they used to be fairly simple. Um, we still kind of do that today. Even FHA will allow some of that. Gotcha. Okay. From my perspective, again, playing devil's advocate, playing the tenant that's going to fight this in court, um, the rent credit application coming against the purchase price is, I, I don't, if I were to do a lease option personally, um, as, a, as an investor, you never, in my opinion, anyway, and maybe Bill can address this, but you never, ever mention the other document. They're two standalone agreements that have nothing to do with each other um, if you want to stay out of hot That's why we and, separate. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, why we and separated I, yeah, and them as well. Pardon me? That's the reason why we kept them separate. A lot of people had single-page documents, and this right. was more because of the confusion and I tried to point it out to the investors. The way that I like to do it is if you had a rent credit of, let's say, $200 a month, you would put that onto the option agreement that says it's $200 for the option agreement continuing each month, and 800 would be towards the lease. But it got too confusing for people on how that worked, that they're like, just put it as a rent credit. We understand the risks, okay. and we'll move forward. Yeah, from from my perspective, though, now, now that you're applying – Principal balance reduction, which is what you're doing. Principal balance reduction is for a sale. Exactly. So, so we understand the intent here is not truly a lease option. It really is to create a sale. But, um, and I'll let Bill get into that here in a second. All right. So moving along, um, we go to the option to purchase real estate. I don't, forgive me, Angelo. I don't know. I, this, is, this is a big pet peeve of mine <laughs> is when we have titles that do not belong in contracts. It drives me insane. Um, on an option agreement, from my understanding, and I'm not an attorney, it's option E and option or. I don't know they get all. I don't know where purchaser and seller come in because there is no purchaser because he has an option to purchase. He's not buying. He's not agreeing to buy. He has an option to do that. Seller, I could get along with because he is in fact the seller, but he's not really the seller for the term of this agreement. Um, but beyond that. If we move on down, you have purchase price, 
generally I would have that defined as an option strike price, not as a purchase price. Um, purchase, <clears throat> pardon me. Purchase shall be entitled to possession of the property at signing of the disagreement and accompanying lease. And here we go again. We're referencing the other document, which I would never do because now, based on the way that judges respond to this stuff, you again, we have a sale here. We do not have a lease agreement and an option agreement. We actually have a disguised sale. Um, so I don't ever reference either of the two documents together because if, if you're going to do that, you might as well just have one document. There's, there's really no reason not to. You know, Vincent, um, what, what that does when you're talking about relating to the documents, in my opinion, um, and I ask uh, our local members here and investors all the time, do they know the difference between a lease purchase and a lease option? Uh -huh. So make things really short here is a lease purchase is an obligation, not an option. And the lease yep. option is an option, not an obligation. By referencing the other document, what you've done is is you've taken the lease option and created a lease purchase. But as we'll talk about later, the IRS ruled against that clear back in 1917, and they consider any lease with an option the same as a lease purchase. Did not know that. As long as the lease, yeah. yeah, as long as the leasee is also the optionee, or the optionee is also the leasee, they consider that a lease purchase. Or that's where we get the term a delayed or disguised sale. Is what the IRS uh, determines that. Gotcha. A lot of people ask, well, what does the IRS have to do with it? Well, if there's a sale of anything, right? What do they have to do with it? So yeah, it's all about yeah, tax. Yeah, their hands so. out. Okay. And now we go back down once again to rent credits. We've kind of beat that mule already, but in my opinion, based on my experience, based on what the, how the judges are going to rule, you've got equitable interest at that point because they're getting credit against the um, principal balance of the property upon executing or exercising the option. We've got the red credit thing here again. Yeah, it's um, considered a it's considered a down payment. Yeah, well, yeah, and that's the you know, the option fee, and then this. So, <clears throat> what he's done here, and this is this this document here is not Angelo's document, but this is. Can we go back one? Yeah, which one? Go back to the option agreement. The automatic termination <laughs> clause that you said won't fly. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, I might blow past that. Where did it go? I agree with you that it probably won't, but when you go to sell it to somebody else, you want to get, be able to give something to the title company to clear it off. And even though by law it might not work, it's enough to get through the underwriters in order for you to sell it to somebody else. Run that by me one more time. The automatic termination clause in the option, if you can show that you evicted someone and now you're going to sell the property to somebody else and you need a title company to do the work, they're going to say, hey, this option was recorded. When you could show them that this had the automatic termination language in there, as gotcha. well as a copy of the eviction to show they're no longer in possession, they'll mm. clear it so that you're able to sell it to somebody else from that cloud on title. Okay, so what you're referring to, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that this has nothing to do with the dispossessory action and everything to do with assuming that the dispossessory action went through because he didn't appear or didn't know what to argue and you've got an option or a memorandum of option recorded in the courthouse that you now have a cloud on title that you're trying to remove. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Okay. All right. <clears throat> I, we're arguing two different sides of this. What I was saying is if I brought this up in court with the judge as the tenant, um, 
it's you know I, I'm not aware of any scenario where they're going to revoke the rights of the option E because of a defaulted lease, which has nothing technically to do with it, unless we're joining the documents and creating the equitable interest once again with the lease option. So that's that was my point, and I understand what you're saying. In our agreements, when we did the lease option deal, we had a, a strict prohibition against any memorandums being recorded for that exact purpose. So it's smart that you've got that in there. Okay, this other document, <clears throat> pardon me. Now, this is not Angelo's document, so he doesn't have to comment on this at all, but it is being packaged in with his documents and sold, and I'm assuming being utilized by people. <clears throat> and once again, this was actually, if, you, if this copyright is accurate, it's by Claude Diamond. And on one form here, you have a residential lease and you have an option to purchase all on one document. Option consideration, um, I don't know if this just isn't filled in or what, if they're with the rent credit, maybe he's doing zero rent credits. <clears throat> and if that's the case, I'm not even sure why they would even listed on there. But again, you've, you've enjoined the documents here. You've given constructive notice of enjoining the documents here, which I wouldn't do and I wouldn't wanna have this brought up in court if I was the investor personally, um, or the landlord or seller of the property strictly because of that. Okay, now we get over to the assignment, <clears throat> pardon me. And so I assume what they're doing here is the investor is signing as the tenant and lessee on the original document with an ability and right to assign. He then assigns that for a fee, which would technically be an option fee, excuse me, an assignment fee not an option fee because the option fee would be paid in his option up front and he would be assigning that contract then to the end tenant and option E. And this, this document then references option payments, which I didn't understand because it seems like that the option would have already been paid and transpired at that point because it was $10 in the other agreement. And then it didn't address there the assignment fee. Agreements. Pardon me? There are other agreements when the option fee isn't paid in full up front and there, let's say the seller or the optioner is asking for $100 a month on top of the lease payments. So it isn't the fact that the $10 is the sole payment each time. Gotcha. No, I, I understand. And we're dealing in generalizations here in many cases because we're using a sample document, not something that's actually specifically been created for a transaction. But all right, let's get through that. Now, <clears throat> what I did this morning was, and this is what we're going to lead into um, the experience that Bill has as a CPA and then the experience that Scott went through was, uh, quite frankly, I could not remember what the IRS regulation was, the actual number, so I could pull it up for you guys for equitable interest and in de facto and disguised sales. So I started, did a Google search real quick and I went through about, I don't know, six or seven websites and I finally came along one that had the information that I was looking for. Um, and I have to tell you, I, I started reading this this morning on the couch, having my coffee, and I started chuckling when I finally got down to the bottom and I saw who the author of the article was. <laughs> it was Bill. So and I, went, and I, have to, I have to tell you, before we even, even scheduled this, I didn't have any knowledge that he had any knowledge of any of this. He just uh, he did, tends to be a very good moderator and brings a level head to uh, any of these webinars that we do in a different perspective. So, um, but yeah, it kind of worked out perfectly. He has all the knowledge, and I'm going to let him kind of roll into and explain 
um, what the IRS regulation is and his understanding of it. You're talking about uh, the revenue rolling 55540? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, that's basically the disguised sale uh, where they say whether an agreement whether it's a, a lease or an unconditional sales contract or whatever, it's evidenced by the provisions of the agreement read in the light of the facts and circumstances existing at the time the agreement was executed, basically. So it gets back to that idea of intent is one of the major things. But they're going to look at a lot of, uh, a lot of the circumstances surrounding the transaction itself to see whether the intent was to to be the, a sale or whether it was actually a true lease. And one of the things they look at is whether a portion of the rental payments are specifically applied to equity in the property. And Vince, that's what you were talking about when you were saying that uh, we were going to run into an equitable interest problem and when we had payments that were being applied to a principal balance or even payments being applied to a down payment. Um, so it says if portions of the rental payments are specifically applied to equity in the property and think rent credits, it's more indicative of a sale uh, rather than a true lease. Um, another thing, and this was actually more of like um, car leases and things like that, but we can apply it equally to, to real properties if it's title to the property will transfer to the leasee upon payment of the rental payments, meaning that the payments over time are actually equal to the purchase price. That doesn't usually happen in a lease option deal, but I've actually seen that before. So it can happen, and that's one of the things they look at. In other words, you know, you get to the end of the lease term, and I'm thinking some of these people who used to have 10-year leases, right, and, and the payments have been equal to the entire purchase price. Uh, if the amount paid in rental payments is an excessively large proportion of the total sum to be applied to secure the transfer of the property is another indicative uh, item of a sale. Um, if there is a, a situation where the property is transferred under a purchase price that is nominal in relation to the value of the property. So that was those old types of deals. Again, it was more in um, equipment rentals and things like that, but they applied the same principles. Uh, it used to be where you paid over a period of time, like five years, and then you paid a dollar at the end of the lease term and, the, and it was yours. It was more like a rent to own type deal. Uh, so these are things that they are going to look at. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, one of the major ones I almost forgot was the, the lease requires the leasee or the buyer to make substantial improvements to the property. That's directly out of the revenue ruling. So that's why we're getting back to the transfer. Uh, Angelo, even if it's just a psychological thing, I think that may be why Vincent brought it up. Uh, because if you're trying to to transfer all the substantial repairs and maintenance over to the uh, to the to the buyer, then it's going to be more indicative of a sale and not of a um, a true lease and option. Yeah, let me so jump what, in for let me jump in for a second here, real quick, sure. Bill. So this will make sense <clears throat> because we the contracts that we use now uh, are in compliance with the IRS's installment sales contract guidelines, and right. for for a contract for deed to be classified uh, under IRS ruling as a bona fide sale where the buyer can then legally deduct the, the monthly payment that they're making or the portion thereof that's, that's interest and taxes, they have to do and assume all of the liability and responsibility of a, a homeowner 
in Correct. this case, so they have to take over maintenance right. repairs, yeah. exactly. everything. And so that to me is when I, when I saw that, you know, that really stands out as, okay, well, this is their definition of what a sale is. And this is, these are the requirements that we have to have for them to get the tax deduction. Then it certainly would apply. And if we're doing the same exact thing in a lease, how is that not construed as not a, a sale? sale? Right. And so, so that's, and that's why you, why we say you can't transfer uh, the substantial repairs and maintenance. So, you know, what we were telling our, our folks now to look at is to make sure that you don't have rents that are way over fair market value. And used to, we used people, some of the people who were teaching lease option deals would say, oh, you rent if you're doing a, a lease option, right? So they would bump the market rent up several hundred dollars and say it's okay because it's going to apply to the purchase price. We can't do that if you want to make sure that you're not going to look like a disguised sale because that's one of the first things they'll look for is to whether the rent that you're charging is at fair market value. Uh, another thing I say is no rent credits. Um, one thing, and Angelo, you might be able to speak on this, one thing that that is allowed is seller concession so I've had a few people who would say, okay, if we can't do rent credits, can we just uh, tie into the option that we can give a certain amount as a seller concession for successfully completing the, the option requirements? And here in Tennessee, I've got a few attorneys saying, yes, you can do that. So we're doing away with the rent credits and using uh, seller concession in that, in that respect. Uh, another thing is make sure that your option price is at or near fair market value. And don't try to pass on your your repairs and maintenance. I think that uh, getting to you know saying leaky faucets and toilets and stuff like that would probably be okay, but fixing a furnace and repairing a roof probably would not be. I think it would be interesting if you go to court and they're going to say that this is a sale mm -hmm. or a disguised sale because of the fact that you have this clause in there that the tenant is responsible for all of the repairs. If you make the argument that says, by law, I can't pass those things on, which means this clause is invalid, so I didn't actually transfer those obligations to the tenant, so you can't use yeah. that argument. Yeah, that, that would be interesting. <laughs> my, my thing on that, though, is you know, whether it's enforceable or not, and maybe this is more from a tax standpoint than it is from a legal standpoint, but whether it's enforceable or not, I can guarantee you the Internal Revenue Service is going to look at that contract and say, you attempted to do it, whether you were actually legally able to do it or not. And so it's still more indicative of a sale. A court may not rule the same way. Um, the IRS, so because the IRS I'm, I am looking at the, uh, at, at the IRS ramifications of this, but one of the things that led me to look at this anyway was because of Dodd Frank. Because we're we're some people are missing the entire point of the fact that if your lease option can be reclassified as a sale, as an installment sale, then I would venture to say that Dodd Frank rules and regs are going to apply, and you may have bigger problem than just not being able to evict your tenant. Yeah, yeah, I was actually going to lead into that yeah. because basically what happens here is you start layering with these clauses that create this domino effect of it being deemed and ruled by a, a judge in a court as a sale that then yep. forces the judicial foreclosure process, which you don't have in a lease, obviously. And so now you have the argument that a tenant, and again, playing devil's advocate, if it were me, 
knowing what I know, when I wanted to play the game here against Angelo as the attorney, that's exactly what I would do. I would, I would string him all the way through that and then go file a complaint with um, whoever the governing czar is of Dodd-Frank for the state and yep. say, you know, we have a sale, you know, blah, blah, blah. And what they're doing now, <clears throat> if you guys haven't read about this, is they can actually, they've, they've deemed in Dodd-Frank that they can actually come in, take your property as a seller and landlord and transfer the ownership to the tenant or the uh, buyer in that case, okay, if you violated some of these provisions. So you got to be careful with what you're doing because they're not playing games. Oh, yeah. And, and not only that, I mean, one of the one of the major clauses of Dodd-Frank, if if it was imposed as a sale and like, like Angelo had said, most tenants would not know this. But if you ever did find one in the node, it would only take one, as Scott could probably tell you, it only takes one yeah. to really screw you uh, because that one tenant could come back and say, OK, this is a sale. Therefore, this is seller financing. Therefore, Dodd-Frank applies. and most likely, the landlord seller would not have taken into consideration the tenant's ability to repay, which is the big thing with Dodd-Frank. So they would owe back all three years of, or up to three years of the monies that had been paid in, and they would have to follow the rules and regs for an eviction or a foreclosure. And under Dodd-Frank, you've got 120 days before you can even file for a foreclosure. Mm -hmm. So I am so very lucky that wasn't in effect when that happened to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, Scott, yeah. yeah Scott, go ahead. Because Scott, like Scott said, I mean, it only takes one, right? <laughs> only takes one. Yeah. Like, like an IRS audit, it only takes one. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, Scott, that's a perfect lead in for you. Um, <laughs> why don't you tell everybody who you are, what your experience is? I've got your, your story up here. Um, and, and, you know, anybody, uh, we're going to do this real quick. Obviously, I can uh, probably stretch it out for a long time, but I'm not going to do that. Anybody that wants to copy that story, they all have to do is email me. But, um, but the bottom line is, guys, is that, uh, you know, just like what we're talking about here, I was led to believe that, uh, uh, that these contracts and even some of the people that have been mentioned here in this uh, webinar uh, are the people, uh, let's put it this way, it was two attorneys these contracts that I used that got me in trouble, and yet neither one of these gentlemen would uh, uh, help me or support me uh, or defend their own documents. And they were the attorneys that supposedly drafted their own documents. So, but the bottom line is, is I found out real quick that, you know, when I had a tenant that didn't pay uh, or couldn't pay, um, uh, that uh, the state, because of certain reasons, stepped in and helped help defend this young lady that I was trying to evict that I actually was trying to help because her husband left her long story. Won't go into it. But, uh, uh, when we ended up getting into court, uh, they brought in an attorney to help her that, uh, as a law student, a, uh, what fourth year, sixth year law student, whatever, um, decided to, who was an excellent researcher, uh, found, uh, and I'm not in Utah, but they, she found that this obscure, and I won't say obscure, it was obscure to me, but not, not to Arizona. She found law in Arizona, case law in Arizona, and legislation that was used against me in my state. And I get asked all the time, well, how in the world can they use Arizona law against you in Utah? Well, it's called case precedent. It happens all the time across the country. Um, and it only, it only makes sense. And 
what they got me on, and I'll, I'll tell you these things, they got me on, uh, uh, and I'll say they get me, just lack of a better term, but uh, what I got uh, prosecuted on, or not necessarily prosecuted, but what I have sued on, is there's five basic rules that the legislators in Arizona created that would determine if your transaction is a delayed or disguised or a sale. And what's really interesting is years before uh, this ever happened to me, I actually knew and did business with and had done business with the guy that eventually became the judge, uh, the guy that actually helped draft the legislation in Arizona that nailed me in Utah. And so also in my story, I have a, actually a transcript of my personal conversation with Judge Pierce, Lester Pierce in Arizona, and, uh, and you can read that too. But the bottom line is here's the five things and if you think about this, guys, it only makes sense. Um, and the, the Arizona legislation, by the way, guys, is the underpinning of all the uh, lease option uh, or anti-lease option or predatory lease option law that was passed back in September of '09 for Texas. Uh, there's one in Cincinnati that they actually call the anti-predatory lease option law. And, of course, Ohio, you know, is, is uh, fixed there knows into things all the time and, and has specific legislation that they just posted, matter of fact, on Facebook for all investors to know and to scare the crap out of. Um, it has no teeth, by the way. But uh, here's these five things. And, and now think about this. All the lease option courses or all the lease option gurus or all the seminars you've ever been to, you think about these five things and what they've told you about these. Number one, here's the things you can't do. Now, they're not criminal. It's just if you violate any one of these things, and actually they're six, but if you violate any one of these things, your transaction can and will be deemed a sale. Now, being deemed a sale is exactly what Vincent's been talking about, is that it brings up that claim of equitable interest, which is what happened to me. So number one is this. And I know these sound ridiculous. You cannot, you cannot predetermine a purchase price. Because if you name a purchase price, isn't that a sale? Isn't that what you're agreeing to? That's what they're saying. Number two, you cannot collect more than one and a half times the normal monthly payment up front as an option deposit. Number three, you can't credit any part of an option deposit or any part of the rent towards the future purchase. We've kind of already gone over that, right? To do any maintenance. Now, they didn't define any. But I, I agree with uh, uh, what Bill was saying is that, you know, heck, if you make them fix their leaky toilet, that's one thing. But the roof's another, right? So they're saying you can't, in other words, they can't, as Vincent said earlier, they can't act like a duck and walk like a duck or they're a duck. Okay? And what's interesting is number five is based on the ruling in 1917, it's McClellan versus something I can't remember right now. Uh, it's in the story uh, that, that the IRS ruled that a lease option is not an op a lease with option at all. It's a delayed or disguised sale. It doesn't matter if you have uh, one document that's a lease purchase or called a lease purchase, and it doesn't matter if you separate the two documents. It doesn't even matter if you refer them to each other or not, as, as Vincent was talking about earlier. As long as the lease is the option E, and, and the option E is also the lease E, you've got a delayed or disguised sale in the eyes of the law. And if you do any one of those five things, 
not just in Arizona, and if a smart attorney somewhere else can get a hold of this and find case precedent, they can use it against you. And if they make a great argument, as what happened to me, we ended up going out and settling out in the, out in the hallway, and I had to, well, I lost everything because of one person that I tried to help. Now, there's a sixth one. It's, it's an IRS thing. Um, and previous to 1982, it was really a, a, a much bigger deal. The IRS says that any lease of longer than three years, even if it doesn't include an option to purchase, can be deemed a sale in their, in their eyes. Now, Bill, you may know more about that. I think that's changed a little bit since. Yeah. But, uh, but previous to 1982, of course, that's during St. Germain. That was uh, that's what they could rule, and they did quite often uh, to collect taxes. So those are those are the five things that that nailed me, guys, in in, in my state, uh, based on another state's uh, laws. And I know that's what they used uh, again as an underpinning in Texas and Ohio. I think some areas in Florida. And uh, it, in other words, guys, if, if it hurts when you do that, don't do that. Right? That's what this this webinar is all about. And if there's any kind of potential uh, danger uh, involved, we're trying to uh, educate you uh, to look for those potential risks and liabilities in these transactions. And not just lease options. Uh, because of Dodd-Frank, it's really brought all this into these other uh, type of methods and uh, documentation and so on. So I know Bill's done some great webinars with uh, Susan Lassiter and, and others on the Dodd-Frank issue and... Uh, and he's pretty well versed on that. So that, that's kind of my story. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I'm the you guys know me. I'm, I'm the land trust guy. Um, you know, Tennessee treats them a little bit different as you know, Bill, but, yep. uh, I, I, I discovered for myself that if, uh, and, and, and ways to eliminate those five things using, uh, the land trust and occupancy agreement. And, you know, maybe that's a, a, another webinar in and of itself. But, but uh, um, anyway, th there's my story, and, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Let me see if I can if Lisa, uh, it looks like you're still on here. Do you mind coming on and explaining what happened to you last year? I'm going to unmute you. Lisa, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Okay. And, and, and by the way, by the way, Vincent and Lisa, Lisa knows this. I think the uh, the lease options sucks uh, Facebook page was created just because of Lisa's story. Yeah, Lisa, start at the beginning. Tell them how you got involved, oh, what happened, etc. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to thank you and Scott. You guys helped me a lot with when I when I was going through that. So. I really want to thank you for your help. Um, My pleasure. Basically, um, what happened is this tenant decided that they didn't want to buy anymore, and they just let the place run down, and the city came in and evicted them themselves. And there were supposed to be things that were supposed to be taken care of. They weren't doing it because the, the city official told them that even though it was in the contract, they it wasn't their responsibility. It was the landlords. So that's where it started. And then, so they got sued. The sellers got sued. And I wasn't even a part of it at that time, but I went to court with them to, to help them. 
and the court commissioner flipped through the papers and it was he just he shook his head and, and huffed because it was like a confusing mess to him and he said he said well why are you suing these guys you should be suing lisa barton she's going to have your money <laughs> and the people the buyers looked like they had like the, the cat that swallowed the canary they just had a big smirk on their face and they're like oh okay and that's how it started so i already knew when i went back in there i i had the fight of my life because um he already had me guilty so and i had to go back in front of him so that's where it started and so they <clears throat> you didn't try and get him recused yeah that's what i put on too but <laughs> what was that did you try and get him recused for giving legal advice um i knew it was wrong but i didn't know exactly what to do about it yeah the pro part, of, part of the problem that she had with it had at that point was, hold on hold on part of the problem that she had at that point angela was that she couldn't get any attorney to represent her uh, even if she was willing to you know fork over thousands of dollars up front that's how she ended up getting exactly. on facebook and you know saying hey this is what's going on um but yeah it was a it was a mess and you know if I, when i took a look at the contracts that she had <clears throat> and I'll, i don't know if she wants to tell where she got them from but that's up, that's up to her um they were a mangled mess of incoherency and basically left only one leg to stand on because it did create the de facto and disguise sale it was an absolute i mean if it had been me as the tenant she wouldn't be um so thankful right now i can tell you that just based on how bad these things were put together and the fact that the i guess the other people i don't know if they had an attorney or not but they didn't know what they were doing um to prosecute it the right way but at any rate they had the, they had the entire thing going on no attorney would take it for the one little hinge was this one sentence that was in the agreement that um, was very poorly written, but it was what I told her to kind of hinge everything on, which was essentially it was a waiver of liability and hold harmless. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a mess. I mean, I know she was going through a ton of stress for weeks as this thing was, was going on. But go ahead, Lisa, and tell them, you know, just walk them through it, what happened. Well, I, I was on, it, and I'll say it was Joe McCall's website, and um, so I put a post on there, and it just got a lot of attention. People were asking questions, and, and you know, I'm, I'm begging for answers, and, and then Scott and John Houston, they came and told me to talk to Vincent, so I did, and I, didn't, I never didn't know who you were, so, but I was, I was desperate, um, and so you helped me. Everybody was helping me. Um, except the person that sold me the course. And then finally I get a, um, a message from him on, on Facebook. He just says, Lisa, call me. So and he sent a link. So I had to go to his, his um, calendar. And his only available, available spot was a week from then. And that was the week of court. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, this is just crazy. So um, I put it in there. I was supposed to have 15 minutes, but he was late. Got on there, gave me five minutes, and just kept saying, "Well, what is it? What is it? What's the problem? What is it?" He kept interrupting me and saying, "You know, the contracts are good; they speak for themselves." And I said, "That's not the point." I went to the commissioner; he didn't like the contract, and he's already got me guilty. And he goes, "Lisa, don't lose sleep. You know, it's you're going to be fine. Don't lose any sleep over this." And that was it. He had to go because he had another person. I'm like, "Okay, that didn't help me at all." <laughs> so I just. I had to focus on the contracts. I looked up uh, Wisconsin law 
and I and I had to focus on it. I had to um, figure you know figure out the points in the contract that were going to help me. And one of them was um, because I used to be a realtor, and I know that anytime you change anything, you have them sign it or initial it and date it. So in the bold letters where it said that they would lose their option fee, I had them initial it, and that's what that um, really helped a lot because I pointed that out in court to, sh to show the judge that they knew that they were going to lose their fee. So that helped a lot. Um, for the attorney that you were saying, Vincent, I we tried calling a bunch of attorneys, and one of them said that Wisconsin is pro-consumer. And then the other one we went actually visited with, and he he looked at the contract. And he goes, well, this isn't Wisconsin contracts. And I'm like, well, not all contracts can be Wisconsin. I mean, there's all kinds of contracts. So it just takes two parties to agree, sign, and money to exchange hand. And he said, well, true, but you're you're not going to win. And so I, you know, I put up an argument with him because we we really wanted an attorney to represent us in Wisconsin. So because I knew this commissioner was like I said he already had no guilty um so he wouldn't take the case and so as we were leaving the last thing he said to us he goes well you know I'm you know I'm sorry you guys are going through this but you're gonna lose you know I'm like great <laughs> it's just I had no place to turn I just was fighting for this because the contracts were confusing to them it was confusing to me I was looking for somebody to help me explain explain to me exactly how I could understand because I had to understand them before I could fight, you know, the court system with them. Yeah, so. let me let me stop you right there for a second. And and therein lies the problem. Okay. That is the problem with these courses. Okay. They're providing contracts. They're dispensing legal advice without being an attorney. And then you end up you end up as as the student the investor, you end up getting sued and you don't even understand the contract yourself because it's never been explained. Mm -hmm. And this is one of, <clears throat> one of the reasons, this is not to pat myself on the back, but this is one of the reasons why um, we I handle all the contracts. Contracts go out in my company name for any people that are working with me so that if anything does come up, it's not coming back on them. It's coming directly back on me at that point or my company at that point because I do know how to handle it. And it acts as a barrier and a shield against exactly what you went through. Okay, now that doesn't mean they can't attach and try to enjoin you in the, in the suit as well, but you would not even be a named party on any agreement with a prospective buyer or tenant or tenant uh, optionee or depending on what type of transaction we're doing. You as the student wouldn't even, wouldn't even be on there because you're not qualified in most cases. You haven't been trained on contract law. You haven't been, um, and you guys, I'm assuming, I don't know if this is the case or not, but I assume you prepared the contract. Is that right? I mean, you were given the documents and they're like, you filled in the, Fill in the blanks or forms or whatever. Are you talking about me? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I did. Okay. I so, filled them in, but I, I went on um I went on the website, you know, where they had all the samples and everything and I followed it and whether I knew what, what I was doing, I just I did exactly what they did. So I put it in there and I try I read it to try to understand. Like I said, I was a realtor, so I kind of under understand contracts, but right. it was even confusing for me. So what I ended up doing, because I, I didn't want it to be con confusing in court, I, I did a flow chart. And Bill, Bill Rafter is the one he suggested do a flow chart. So I'm like, okay. So I took that idea and I went through the contracts and, and pieced it together exactly how it all happened. 
And so I had big boxes, just like a, a like they were kindergartner I was talking to. I wanted to make sure I had big boxes, showed exactly how it happened. And and it, it turned out that he was impressed by my <laughs> by how I had it all laid out and 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 he ruled in my favor. So I was extremely happy, except then they didn't have a right to go in front of the, the judge. So they filed again to have a trial. So now this was a whole different ballgame because, yeah, I, I, I went in front of the court commissioner, but then I had to go in front of the judge. So, and, and so we did it. I mean, piece by piece, step by step, and a lot of, a lot of worrying. Yeah, but we did it. So, and I, and I also, the, the sellers, they, of course, they were totally lost. They didn't know anything about what to do about any of it. They were looking to me. So I represented both of us. I went in and, and it was, I handled it, the whole thing for them and for me. So, um, yeah, I, I was really, honestly, I was really shocked that I won. I was really shocked, but I did do my homework and I did take advice that you guys gave me and I applied it and I came out of it. So I just I just don't want to ever get in that position again, never. Well, what would you recommend to people to not be in that position? Um, honestly, I just don't do it. I, I would never do it. But, you know, if there's a way that's a better way to do it, then yeah, but that's why I look to you because um, for me, I don't ever want to do that. I don't want to do reception because I am a landlord and I do know a lot of um, a lot of the details that you know courts look for between the tenant landlord relationships. And there was a lot of those things in that contract that was kind of like I I don't know, I, I was questioning myself. I was like, I don't know if this would really fly in this court system. So I've been in it before. Sure. And I don't know if it would ever fly. And um yeah, I there's a lot of those things like you guys were just talking about, like the repairs, who's going to take care of repairs and stuff that that just doesn't fly in the court system. If the if they're if they're a tenant, the tenant is not responsible for any of that. It's for the and that is up to the judge. If the judge is going to say, yeah, it's in the contract, we're going to go by it. But um, out here, it, I doubt that they would go by it. Angelo, let me ask you a question. Is there some reason that you can tell me or explain to me why given all that we've just covered here and a lot of it you already knew about obviously you said some, you know some of these things are in there for psychological reasons and all that um why not just go f directly with a sale like using an owner finance contract or um scott's title holding trust or something like that what do you mean by owner financing contract okay contract for deed, land contract, installment sales contract, an actual actual bona fide sale, as opposed to, or, or as Scott does, the um, land trust or title holding trust, where you can avoid, you know, any of these, you know, the equitable interest argument, all those things coming up in court. Obviously, you're already conveying that, but there's ways to rescind that as well. You don't have to have deed conveyance. So you don't have to, you know, you, you know we held as a security interest. I'm just curious. I, you know, I, I know lease options were all the all the rage many years ago, and Claude Diamond made it really famous for a lot of people. But I'm just I don't I don't understand them anymore, quite frankly, with all of the just the inherent issues. I think in a land 
I think in a land contract, you're giving too many rights to the tenant. So if they default yeah. on the payments, you almost are guaranteed that you're going to have to do a foreclosure. So if the worst case scenario of a lease option is that you're going to have to go through a foreclosure process, why not at least attempt the other way? Because like I said, most of the time you're protected because the only time you're enforcing these things are when the tenant isn't paying. And if the tenant's not paying, they're paying usually because they have no money, which means they can't hire an attorney, which makes it easier for you to get this. Now, granted, it does sometimes just take one or they go to a law school and they find someone, you know, law students tend to do a lot more work than an actual attorney would. <laughs> they do. <laughs> You'll never hear another attorney say that, guys. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> telling you the truth. Absolutely true. <laughs> I worked for the housing advocates when I was in law school. The, the research, I mean, you're excited, you're learning new things, and you're going to spend a whole bunch of time, you know, learn, looking into this and trying to figure out how this works. And you end up, you know, spending a lot more time on it. But I don't know. It, and as far as the, you know, owner financing, where you'll actually transfer title, again, I think it's just, it just makes it even worse to try and take back. So I like the land contracts or I like the lease options because you have a chance of being able to take it back quicker if the tenant defaults. So you're saying basically it's a lesser of evils, essentially is kind of what it sounds like. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I do. I still prefer to use the, the trust, but I totally agree with you. Um, I think that is probably the lesser of, of the evils, even as evil as that is. Right. So, uh, That's but, but most of the people, most of the people just don't, um, even the people that sell the stuff really don't understand what the ramifications and, and the dangers and liabilities are of those contracts. So it kind of sneaks up on them. They're, they're more aware of those risks and liabilities with, uh, with contracts for deeds and land contracts and, and seller financing and so on. They know that if it's not, if they don't pay, they're going to have to foreclose it. You know, when someone's in a lease option and all of a sudden the, the tenant claims equitable interest, they're going, what the hell is that? What do they mean? And they're totally lost, and they don't have the money to fight it either. And so, you know, if the, if the tenant brings up any kind of a decent argument or gets an attorney, they're screwed. I I have something to add. I, I think a lot of it depends on the tenant's mind frame. If they're in a buyer's mind frame, I think it's going to go smoother. But if you've got a tenant's mind frame, they're they're not wanting to take responsibility for anything. They're they're blaming the owner for everything. I agree with that for sure. Yeah, that's true. You know, when we look at people uh, to put in our properties, I I talk to uh, the sellers. Ask me, well, you know, who are you putting in here? Of course, that's a common question. And my answer is always, I, what I'm not going to put in here is renter mentality people. Right. And we have a we have a process we go through. Um, I really like to put people in my properties that have been homeowners before or were just recently foreclosed or bankrupt. Um, these people understand the emotional and financial responsibilities of home ownership. And, and just because someone was foreclosed or, or had to file bankruptcy, um, you got to listen to what, uh, what, what their situation is because they're not, uh, they're not, you can't just classify them as deadbeat because they had to do that or something happened to them. You really need to look at their story and, 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 I would highly recommend that in whatever transactions you do, really um, try to deal with people that are homeowner mentality people. And a lot of times, I'll, 
when I do, if I ever do open houses, I have two or three couples come at the same time. And I've literally had people fighting on the front yard of a house for the house because they were homeowner mentality people. And the ladies, it was two ladies, matter of fact, said, no, I want this house. And she says, no, no, you didn't. And I want this house. And that now those are homeowner mentality people. Those are people right. that really want this house, right? So you got to really be careful. Everybody knows that of who you put in, but I, I look for that homeowner mentality. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you on that. And that's one of the reasons why we set our minimum price point at 300,000 and our minimum payment point at 2000 a month, because <clears throat> from my perspective, what I want is six figure income households, and I want somebody that has been a homeowner previously because they they understand what the what the game is going in. There's some some reason they don't qualify today, and so they're thankful and grateful for the opportunity to actually technically legally be able to own a home, um, and you know take the tax deductions and all those things. But when you're dealing with you know renters or the that's the thing I didn't like about the lease option deal. That's why we shifted away from it years ago. Is you do get that career career renter mentality where the landlord is responsible for everything and there's no you know personal investment in the house as it relates to taking care of it like a homeowner would because they're just tenants and I didn't want right. people stuck with that if that makes sense right. so you know a lot of things a lot to have time pardon me um, on the lower end when you're dealing with the first-time homebuyer crowd and all that that's where I think you have a lot more of these type problems than you do Lisa what was the um, price point or payment of that property um, it, was, it was 98,000 yeah there you go okay. I mean. and and Vincent I think you, you're dealing with with the with the higher level homes and you you lean more towards that ownership higher down payment thing and I think the contract for deed is totally appropriate and that's what I would use in those circumstances I still think Probably there is a place for uh, the lease option deals on maybe the lower priced houses. I'm not saying like dirt cheap houses, you know, but the median price and lower, that's where the lease option probably would work, uh, work as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, properly structured, you know, lease options are, they can be fantastic. They can, be, they can work really well yeah, if they're properly, well, stru but, yeah. but the key is, like you said, properly structured. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally, I'm, I'm totally. Uh, that's what I'm going to say here. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think you can properly structure a lease option. I don't think there's such a thing. I think that's a, a, a contradiction in terms. Well, I, I've, I'm almost inclined to agree with you. Back in the day, you know, we we, we turn back time a little bit. You could, but in, in light of all this recent case law and the way things have shifted, I would say you, you know. I would have to lean more in your exactly what you're saying but yeah there was a time they were fantastic i did a ton of them on my own on houses i did got for myself and i did one on a two and a half million dollar house that i personally moved into on a lease option where the um option fee i gave her 10 bucks for the option fee and moved in for the first month's payment of twelve thousand dollars and it was a two and a half million dollar milvers model home that was completely decked out with all the decor and furniture and everything and fortunately for me in that scenario um, I did have a lease option I didn't have a contract for deed because when the bottom fell out the property uh, that was two and a half million is now worth about nine hundred thousand so wow. that, that was a scenario where it was actually beneficial um, 
<laughs> for me anyway. Well, then, and I hate to be I a party pooper. I, I have another obligation that I need to no. get to. God, I, but, appreciate uh, I really, uh, I, I really appreciate you asking me to be on this panel and, uh, and re really like what you're doing. You know, we've, uh, we've all butted heads here and there every now and then, but it's really great when, uh, when great minds can actually all get together, uh, whether they agree or not. Uh, it, I think it's been very productive and I think people will have learned a lot and, and I, I certainly would be open to participating in more if you'd have me. Hey, listen, I, I really, appreciate really that. really want to thank you. No, thank you. No, so. My pleasure. All Thanks right, guys. You. Hey, thanks. I'm going to, I'm going to take off now, but, uh, I'm sure everybody else can stick around and ask some questions, uh, of these knowledgeable guys. So all right. appreciate y'all. Thanks guys. Talk to you later. Well, yep. Unless anybody has, um, I think we've answered, we get some, we have questions here. Um, Vince, I'm going to have to call in. I've got to disconnect from on here. So I'll call yep. in on the phone line. No, no worries. <clears throat> Jer Jeremy's asking if you can't take more than one and a half months rent up, um, from an investor standpoint, why would you do them? How can you make money doing them? What, <laughs> yeah, what, what Scott was referencing is actually Arizona state law. It's absolutely state landlord tenant law. Yep. Um, I, don't, I don't know that that applies. I think it's, it was kind of being used have, as a general. Have you really, Vincent, seen that applied in other places? I've never seen it applied any place else. And quite I've, frankly, I've, I've not either. Now, I think it probably would in, in Arizona. You know, yeah. and apparently it may have in Utah as a as some type of precedent. But I've been doing subject to and lease option deals for quite a while. I've mm -hmm. never seen that applied. No, I've never seen. And I have to be honest with you. When I first read it, um, it was about I think two years ago, and I was actually I was in a battle on a um, on a on a vacation rental that I was in, and I was having to go through and figure out exactly what the Arizona landlord tenant law was and I read that and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just did like just totally caught me off guard that, that was actually what the law was. I had to read it three or four times and make sure I understood it correctly, but that's the way they that's, do it out here. That's really kind that's really kind of wild. Yeah, there's a I'm trying to think there's a something similar in New Jersey because we ran into that um, on one of the properties up there as well that is a straight rental uh, that I've got and I can't remember. I can't remember the exact number. Well, it, it sounds almost like Arizona has taken what Tennessee uses as their max for a security deposit and right. tried to apply it to an option fee, uh, because that is the that is the law in Tennessee, or it was at one time, uh, and I think it still is. Is that you can only you can take no more than one and a half times the rent for a security deposit. Right. Yeah, I believe that. I think that's I think that's correct as well for New Jersey. Something similar to that. All right, Bruce is asking: In most of the courses, the assignment fee and option deposit are the same. How can the assignment count both as an assignment fee and an option fee to be used later as a down payment? How can it be both? And what is the proper way for the third-party investor to get paid? A way that allows for the buyer not to be required to put more money down when it comes time to close. Even as a contract for need, how do you structure your profit so that it will count for the buyer when he finally refinances? Can you give me one second? I could probably answer that. Guys, still there? 
Hello? Is that Angelo? Yes. Okay, Angelo. Yeah, I can barely hear you, Angelo. I'm not sure Vincent can hear you or not. All right. Is that a little better? A little better. Yeah, I got you. I'm sorry. I muted out the coffee and forgive me. Um, well, yeah, what I was saying was that the the document that we just reviewed of Angelo's does not have, well, I guess it, there was a reference to it at one place, but you had an option fee of like $10 for the option, and then you had a separate assignment fee, which would be how the invent, third-party investor would be making his money by assigning his right title and interest in that contract to the uh, assignee and then tenants at that point. So, Correct. And you can't have both of those be the same thing. Agreed. And I, I think I think it's where, where he was confused. You cannot have both of them be the same thing. They've got to be two different things entirely because they're it's like trying to pay for two different things with the same money. You can't do that. Um, and then you're asking um, what's the proper way for a third-party investor to get paid on a lease option? Um, yeah, I'll let Angelo and Bill address that one, and then I'll go into the contract for deed stuff on how we do it. So, Bill, what would you say is the appropriate way for an investor to get paid on a lease option? On a, on a lease option, if he's going to assign it, he gets paid at an assignment fee. Right. Uh, and that's, well, the only, that's the only way, really, to do it. Yeah, unless you're doing a sandwich. It, yeah, unless you're doing a sandwich lease option. What I usually do so that it can count towards the purchase price is in the purchase agreement, we will usually give a concession equal to what the assignment fee was. And it's just coincidental that those numbers match. Gotcha. And I tell you, you guys are lucky you haven't come across a wise guy yet that knows what the game is. <clears throat> That's, is, man, wow. I had a <clears throat> next door neighbor of mine who was a, owned, owned about $30 million worth of commercial real estate uh, houses all over the United States and all the resort locations. Just, he, you know, Really, really, really sharp guy, very wealthy. And he ended up doing a deal with a real estate broker as his partner on a uh, property in Alpharetta. And they got a guy in there and they did um, one of these lease option deals with him. And it was, they used, which they shouldn't have. And I tried to tell them that up front the uh, Georgia Association of Realtors contract. And the guy got in and did exactly what I told you. He got in, he immediately stopped paying, and it took him 18 months to get him out. Wow. On a lease option, Joe. So this is a good listen. And we're talking about a seasoned investor who knows what he's doing, who's, you know, you know, liquid multimillionaire guy. We're not talking about some uh, one of these guys, new guys on Facebook. I'm talking about somebody who's, you know, almost 70 years old doing stuff. So anyway, all right. So then the next thing is, is how, how do you structure the contract for deed um, to profit so that it will count for the buyer when he finally refinances? There are a number of ways that you can do that. The probably the easiest way is to um, purchase the property and then resell it to him or assign it to him, depending on how you want to do it. But his down payment is technically a down payment that comes off of the purchase price and it is credited against the principal balance so that he does get full credit for it at the time that he goes to refinance, which is what he's doing is getting a refi. Um, refinance transaction and not a purchase money transaction at the time that he goes to get mortgage financing on a lease option deal. 
And I, I will be the first one to admit I haven't done these in, what, six or, I guess, roughly six years. Um, you have an option fee, and since they don't really apply the rent credits anymore, he's when he comes in to purchase, it's a purchase money transaction. So unless there's seller concessions that are being allowed by the lender, um, he is going to have to come in with a down payment at that point. Is Angelo, is that still correct? We lose him. Okay, I think he, I think he fell off. <clears throat> um, at any rate, so that, that's my understanding anyway. So I don't know if that helps, hopefully that will help you. Yeah, that that Vincent too is varies sometimes from lender to lender, but is essentially correct. I've found some lenders that will still allow the option fee if you can show that it was paid, and and have the paper trail. They'll still allow it to be applied to a down payment. But there are some lenders who will not. And I've actually found that to be the case for the last several years, not just you know, recently. But I'd say even 10 years back, it would vary from lender to lender. Yeah, I'm not so, aware of so, anybody. Yeah, so, one thing, so one thing I've told I, that I never do and I teach uh, you know, my consulting students never to do is never to try to guarantee that that option fee is going to be applied to the down payment. It can be applied to the purchase price, but it may not be applied to the down payment. It depends on the lender. Right. So applied to the purchase prices would, would then be a seller concession against principal balance, but it does not impact the um, down payment requirement. And Correct. More than likely, depending on how they structure it, may or may not apply towards closing costs and prepaid items. Right. It probably is a straight principal balance reduction. All right, guys, if anybody else has any other questions, I hope that was helpful for you. Um, that is a clinic on why I don't do lease options, and you get to hear it from Scott, who lived it himself and was prosecuted for it. Uh, you get to hear it from Bill with the IRS. Uh, so, I mean, that's really the governing authority in the United States. There are ways to do them, but if you're going to do them, be very, very careful in doing these boilerplate contracts that you're getting from these courses for all the reasons that we just covered. In my opinion, there are better ways to do it, which is one of the reasons why we use a contract for deed. So, I mean, why risk a disguised sale when we, everybody knows what the intent is right, right from the very beginning and just go ahead and sell the property at that point and put protections in place, ideally, so you can protect yourself from the judicial foreclosure process, which is what we do. And in my opinion, that's a better way to do it. And I've never, I'll knock on wood as I say this, in seven years, um, we've never been forced to take any buyer through the judicial foreclosure process with any document that we've used period. I've only made it into court one time. It wasn't me. It was because I wasn't even technically part of the contract at that point. I had assigned it. Um, but we had, we've had one landlord make it into court <clears throat> because of the contracts that we used, there were, and this was actually on a lease option, not on a contract for D. This is back in 2008, I believe. Um, and because of the language that we had in the contracts, as I indicated earlier, where they're waiving rights to jury trial, waiving rights to affirmative defenses, um, you know, waiving equitable interest, all that stuff, we, we were able to get it, get the landlord in and out and the dispossessory action issued, you know, without any further delay. And the judge actually said to the, the, um, the tenant that he agreed with him that the contract was extremely egregious in favor of the landlord, which it was, but the fact remained that he had signed it 
and agreed to it. He <laughs> had an opportunity to have it reviewed by an attorney before doing so. And he sl- exactly. Swarmed gavel. Yeah, swarmed the gavel and that was it. So anyway, I hope you guys are taking this stuff seriously. Um, this is a serious business. This is not a hobby with Dodd-Frank. As Bill will tell you, it's not playtime anymore, guys. It's just not. You got to be careful with what you're doing out there. And if they can chain these things together on a lease option to, you know, Define equitable interest in a <clears throat> in a disguised sale. They're only one step away from bringing Dodd Frank in, and then you're going to end up in a scenario where you can potentially have a seller lose his house because he did a deal with you. I don't think that's where anybody what anybody wants to do. So, Bill, I want to thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate that, I, and I want to thank you for <laughs> for that post <laughs> that I found this morning that substantiated everything that I was trying to say very succinctly. Um, appreciate that very much. And other than that, guys, listen, thanks very much and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Virtual Real Estate Investor Podcast with Vincent Polisi. If you found any value in this podcast, please use our Give to Get method and take a moment to give us a five-star rating in iTunes and your favorite podcast service so we can keep giving you excellent episodes of real content you can use to profit today. 